Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we will listen to Pastor David preach from Proverbs 6, 1 through 19. The name of the series is Fear God and Walk Wisely. The sermon is called Wisdom, Where the Rubber Meets the Road. Let's join Pastor David now. Amen. Well, we are continuing through our series, Fear God and Walk Wisely. We're going through the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs. If you have access to Scripture, please meet me there. We're looking for these summer months uh, at Proverbs, just the first nine chapters. Uh, Many of the Proverbs, when we think of the Proverbs, we often think of what we would know of chapters 10 and following, kind of one sentence, short pithy statements that stick with us and that really capture a large portion of life in light of what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. And today we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. Proverbs chapter 6, 1 through 19. This is what God's Word says, Proverbs 6, starting in verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have given a pledge, these are financial terms, security or a pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, deliver yourself, free yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hands of the hunter, like a bird from the hands of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, verse 6. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless man, verse 12, a wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked paths, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Amen. Well, as we're going through this portion of the book of Proverbs, we have to remember continually that you can't get past Proverbs chapter 1, and everything else from the book of Proverbs flows from this idea of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Remember how this entire book opened, Proverbs chapter 1, specifically verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this phrase beautifully captures both and. The fear of the Lord is, it's a relational term. 
It's an affirmation of our connectedness to God, those who trust Him and believe in Him, that we are in a loving covenant relationship with Him. At the same time, there's components of reverence, awestruck um, uh, of affection toward Him. And at the same time, fear. <laughs> More than reverence. We talked about a number of weeks ago, more than reverence, less than terror. I, I often think about, remember the scene when Israel is gathered around Mount Sinai and God descends like this cloud and they were afraid. I think that means literally <laughs> they were afraid. And there is a, an appropriate place in our relationship with God that we come before him and say things like Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am unclean, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. That when we come in the presence of a holy, all-powerful, mighty God, there is an appropriate, fitting sense of fear and, and reverence. Yet it's not a kind of fear that forgets that God is love, He's compassionate, He's gracious, so much to the extent that He's given us His only Son, that we might be reconciled with him, fear of the Lord. And from that full phrase flows the rest of the book of Proverbs. So we see that this book, the book of Proverbs, is not, it's not a how-to book. It's a how-to-be book. And from the relationship we have with God flows this incredible life of wisdom. And if there were ever, was ever a season that we find ourselves in where we need wisdom. We are confronted, you are confronted every single day amidst this coronavirus season with thousands of decisions that none of us have navigated before. We need wisdom. We need it. And that flows from God. And that's why chapter 6 can't be understood, it can't be grasped without first recognizing that this has to come from a reverent, trust, a loving relationship with the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit. And from that, see how the fear of the Lord changes our lives. It shapes our lives, and it gets very, very specific. Proverbs chapter 6 highlights a number of ways that our life is transformed by the fear of the Lord. Then we see right out of the gates in these first verses, the fear of the Lord frees us from money. The fear of the Lord actually frees us, not from money per se, but the love of money, the, the hope that we can put in money, the, the, the trust and desire that we come to material things asking them to do what only God can do for us. And when we fear God, our souls are freed from that magnetic pull that money can have on the hearts of all humanity. Look at verses 1 through 5. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor. If you've given a pledge for a stranger, these are financial terms indicating some form of fi financial obligation. If you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. And this word save here is not talking about salvation in terms of our relationship with God. It's talking about deliverance. It's talking about uh, getting out of bondage. Save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and pledge, plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hands of the hunter, like a bird from the hands of the fowler. 
And if we ask money to give us or material things or, or accumulation of wealth, if we ask money to give us only what God can give us, we create our own black hole. <laughs> that if we come to our bank account or our assets or whatever that might be, and we ask it to give us meaning and significance and security, we've created our own black hole that we can spend our entire lives constantly feeding, constantly pouring energy into, time into, thought into, emotional energy into. We can pour it all into this black hole that money demands, and we will never fill it up. And like all idols, money also, money per se is not the enemy. It's the love of money. It's the idolatry of money that comes to it and says, please never leave me or forsake me. Give me value. Show me my worth. Give me significance. Give me a sense of power and control over my life. Give me a sense of status and security. Let me know I'm, I'm worth something. And if we start asking those questions of money, we'll drive ourselves into the ground. We'll, we'll, we'll sprint into foolish financial decisions that can lead to our own undoing. We'll, we'll be trapped and ensnared in, in bondage. We'll, we'll run into exorbitant debt. We'll chase after endless credit cards, all trying to fill this black hole, this idol that money produces when we worship it more than we worship God. And that's why this father to his son is pleading, turn the other way. And the only reason we can turn the other way is because our God does not give us significance, security, meaning, in proportion to the measure that we give to him, but in proportion to the measure that he has given to us. Do you see that the message of the gospel is that we are found in God and he is found in us by faith, not by what we contribute to him. Catch this. But, but why, what he has given to us. From the abundance of the riches of Christ, he provides all our needs. And from relationship with him alone, we get things like security, significance, meaning, value. Listen to how the New Testament puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. You don't have to turn there if you don't, uh, would not like to, but listen to this passage, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did you catch that phrase? Don't set your hopes, don't set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hopes fully on God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because when we put God-sized pressure on things like resources or money or material things or our assets, we will crush them. It's never going to deliver on those promises. Only God can deliver on those kinds of promises. Only He can fill us. And when that takes place, if God is God and money is not your God, you know what's going to happen? Money is just going to be money. It's just a resource. It's just a tool. And we need money. 
Someone's got to put milk in the fridge. Someone's got to pay the electricity bills so the lights come on. We need money. Money's not a bad thing. It's when we turn it into an idol. It's when we worship it. And what the book of Proverbs is showing that from the fear of the Lord, we now have the freedom to, do, to make wise financial decisions, to view money just as it is, just money. And this transforms our life. There's a number of different things that take place. When money is demoted in our hearts and God takes his rightful place on the throne of the universe and the throne of our hearts, then we can do a couple things. We can do things in seasons of need. And perhaps I'm speaking to some right now who are you are in incredible positions of financial need. This coronavirus season has sent everything. I keep coming back to this metaphor of shaking the snow globe. And for some of you, you might be in a season of incredible financial need where there is real and legitimate concern. And in those seasons, I want to speak to your heart. Sometimes our heart, there's a spiritual temptation to look at what we own, whether that's a bank account or assets or whatever that is, to look at what we own and say, I don't have a lot, therefore I'm not worth a lot. Let the gospel melt that through and through. Do you want to know why? Because God sees you as so valuable, so important, that he would willingly come from heaven to earth to die for you. He gives you your significance. He gives you your value. He gives you your meaning. So for better or worse, for richer or poorer, and if you find yourself in a season of need, know and recognize and hold on to the truth that that is not a commentary on the value of you as a person. God came for you. There's a flip side spiritual danger, both in seasons of need, but also in seasons of plenty. And I'm probably speaking to many where you find yourself in a season of your life where, where you don't have a lot of material needs. God has provided in a, in a number of different ways, and you find yourself doing okay, and that's okay. But beware of the spiritual danger that can come with that. You, we can look at the things that we have, whether that's zeros in an account, whether that's things that you own, whether that's square footage of your home, and you can say, you know what? I, I've got a lot. Beware of the spiritual danger. Therefore, <laughs> must be a pretty big deal. And for us, for those who are in those seasons of life, whether whether we are in a season of, of less or a season of plenty, remember what the gospel does to that. Remember again in First in Timothy how it says, charge them not to be haughty, prideful, puffed up, because there's a spiritual danger that says, you know what, I've got a lot of material means. Therefore, I must be a pretty big deal. Remember the gospel, that we are so broken, we have such a poverty of heart and soul that our sin goes so deep, God himself had to come to make it right. That God himself had to send his son to die for us just because of our poverty of heart, our brokenness of spirit. So the gospel does both. In seasons of need, the gospel says, chin up, chin up, child of God. See how much God cares and loves you. See how your value and identity as a human being is not attached to what you own or don't own. And conversely, 
in seasons of plenty, nose down, child of God. See how the God of the universe needed to come to save you, how it creates this incredible balancing effect that we don't think of ourselves higher than we ought to think or lower than we ought to think. The gospel frees us for that, for that reality, that money does not have this magnetic pull on our lives, that it speaks to us who we are and, and gives us a value as a person. And that makes us, gives us the freedom to, the, to have the very ability to get ourselves out of financial obligation as fast as we can and as aggressive as we can. Gives us incredible wisdom and we will be very slow to enter financial obligation very prayerfully. The gospel frees us to be generous with our resources and our time. It frees us to be generous with the things that we own. It, it frees us to worship God with the things that we have. It frees us to be patient to earn. It frees us to be honest to earn. And even if we lose money or resources or things or whatever that might be, and even if we lose it when it's out of our control, is that painful? Absolutely. Is it discouraging? Yes. But will it crush you? Not anymore. Not anymore. Because it no longer has sovereignty over your heart. God does. In the book of Proverbs, see how specific the book of Proverbs speaks into absolutely every area of our life. In this, these first five, verse, five verses, it speaks into our financial lives. And it shows us that financial freedom doesn't start by caring about money less. It starts by caring about God more. That when God is God in our life, money's just money. And we're free to handle it wisely, to pursue it honestly. And even if we lose it, though discouraging, though perhaps hard, doesn't crush our soul because we are so at rest in Him. The fear of the Lord frees us from this love of money, but the fear of the Lord also does something else, as Proverbs will continue to show us. The fear of the Lord not only frees us from money, it frees us for work. For work, for honest, hard work, the work of our hands or the work of our mind, the work of our feet, the work of our mouth. Look at what it says in verse 6 and following. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. And what this portion of Proverbs is speaking to is what some have referred to as the sin of sloth. The sin of sloth, seen in Zootopia, is coming back. The sloth moving very, very slow. The sin of sloth. And that is a sin of omission. It's a sin that knows what needs to be done, but just doesn't do it. It's the sin of the heart that jumps at no opportunity and flees from all responsibility. It's the sin of the heart that, that doesn't live for anything and has nothing to die for. It's the sin of the heart that doesn't start anything or stop anything, doesn't begin anything or end anything. It's the sin of the heart that 
let life pass by not thinking that I need to engage in any what way. It's a sin that forgets that God is sovereign. It's a sin that forgets that God is present, that he's acting, that he has a purpose and a plan. It's a sin that forgets that God is using us in that plan, calling us co-laborers with him. It's a sin that always chooses flight when sometimes we, when we need to stand and fight. And it's a sin that ironically promises rest. It looks very restful, doesn't it? No activity, but is ironically full of restless angst and anxiety, full of energy, yet engaging and doing nothing. And this sin melts away it starts to dissolve, it starts to decay. The closer we get to God, the closer we get to the fear of the Lord, the closer we get to the message of the gospel. Listen into what Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 10, what it, this says. Some of you might have memorized this passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now catch the beauty of this passage. It shows us, this is the message of the gospel in, in, in a very short, uh, concise text, that we are not saved by good works. We're not saved by our performance. We're not saved by our activity. We don't gain merit badges before God in such a way that we eventually earn a standing before Him. And at the same time, we are saved, again, not by works, but for good works. That works flow from our salvation. Works don't lead up to our salvation. See, catch the pattern. And if we reverse the pattern, we lose the gospel. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. And if that's true, Sloth starts to melt away in my soul, in your soul. The tendency for us to think, ah, someone else has got it. Nothing to live for, nothing worth dying for. And the gospel frees us for honest and good and hard work, but catch how balanced it makes us in our work. That it reminds us that we can rest, true rest, real rest. Why? Because we stand before God not based on our performance, but based on the performance of someone else, Christ. That Christ has done all the work for us. Theologians use the fancy $10 words of, of, of Christ's active obedience. That when you ask the question, how do I know that I'm saved? One of the places we need to look is the cross. Absolutely. But we can also look at the same time of every single moment Christ, the Son, lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. How do I know I saved? The very life of Christ, all of Christ's life, his, his incarnation, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, that all applies to me by faith to save me. That means I'm not saved by my works, but by his works, and that lets me rest. There's a soul kind of rest that the Bible talks about. I've heard someone else put it this way, that there's work underneath our work. 
the work of the soul that's trying to prove who we are and prove our worth and prove our value and create meaning and purpose for ourselves. And, and we use our work, our career, our nine to five to do it, yet we are absolutely anxious through and through. And we long and we need rest. Rest of the soul. A rest that only the gospel provides because it says you're not saved by anything that you do. You're saved by all of what Christ has done. And that lets you rest. Real rest, true rest, not like the counterfeit rest that sloth promises. But catch also, not only does the gospel give us rest, it gives us purpose, it gives us meaning. It gives us something to live for. It gives us something worth dying for. And that's why in the book of Proverbs we find this beautiful illustration in the ant. The hard-working ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Preparing bread, gathering food, working hard, devoting our lives to something. And we can do that. Catch the profound statement that the Bible makes in the New Testament that before the foundations of the earth, God has prepared some things for you and I to walk in. Have you thought about that? Has that shaped how you wake up every morning? Has that shaped how you view your work, your job? Whether you send emails or balance budgets or, or, or take out cavities or organize stuff or build stuff. Do you see and realize that God is sustaining his world in some profound measure He's using us in the process. He's actually using your work. Whether you perceive that it feels very spiritual or unspiritual, God is using all kinds of good work to glorify him and to serve our neighbors. So engage, lean in, consider the ant. Let this metaphor spur you on to do the good work that God has set before the foundations of the world that we have a meaning and a purpose bigger than ourselves. That because of the gospel, we can do things like plant trees that we will never see fully grow. We can start projects that another generation will finish. And our work has meaning beyond our life. It echoes into eternity because of God's sovereign care over the universe and the ways in which he is using us. So parents, parent. Teachers, teach. Bosses, lead. Employees, engage, work hard. But do it in such a way that you have a profound sense of purpose because God's at work and a profound sense of rest. Anxiety-free recognizing that your performance is not a commentary on the value of your soul. Our life, especially in our work and career, we can't avoid, and there's an appropriate fitting place for performance reviews. And when those come around, whatever you uh, find those in your workplace, engage in those with the freedom of knowing that no matter how my performance is or isn't, that doesn't have any meaning on how God views me as his child. I'm loved. It frees us to receive critique, frees us to give critique, frees us to engage in our work with a profound sense of meaning and rest, true rest. The fear of the Lord uh, frees us from the idolatry, from the worship of money or resources or things. It frees us to worship God, to put Him back on the, the first position of our hearts. 
The fear of the Lord also frees us for work, to do honest, good work with our hands, knowing that God is working through us. And also, the fear of the Lord frees us from sin, from brokenness, from evil. Look at how this passage continues. Look at verses 12 and following. A worthless person, verse 12, a wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. Uh, commentators think that this is some sort of uh, kind of manipulative gestures. With perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And listen to this list. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. And as I was preparing for this passage, I remember reading this in my, first time I read it, my imagination went quickly to the extreme examples throughout history. Uh, the, the tyrants, those who led genocides. Uh, dictators gripped by evil and brokenness. We think of war, we think of, of, of incredible famine. That's what my mind first went to as I read this passage, the abusive, the bullies, the manipulators. And then I kept reading it over and over and over and over again. And as I continued to read over and over again, I realized, man, we, we run into this more often than we think, that this passage is not just reserved for the extreme examples throughout human history. This passage is a commentary on our everyday life. And if there is ever a season where we find ourselves, humanity, human culture, with, with an incredibly high level of anxiety and fear, confusion and frustration, compounded by incredible isolation, yet at the same time enabled with an unprecedented platform. I kept reading this passage, and you know what I started to think of? Trolls. <laughs> Not the little cartoons with the fuzzy hair that's pink and green and blue that apparently have incredible singing voices, <laughs> not those kind of trolls. I started reading this passage and I started to think about what the Urban Dictionary would call trolls. Trolls on the internet. Trolls on social media. Some of you might know that term essentially, well, this passage defines them well. Those who troll online looking not to bring clarity but confusion, looking not to bring peace but those who are constantly sowing discord, not looking to help settle the hornet's nest but to come and kick the hornet's nest, not looking to come to spread truth but, but uh, has crooked speech and, and perverted speech and heart-devising evil. Not those who are coming to help, but those who are coming to hurt, almost in such a way that it's actually a sport. We live in a moment of history where this is absolutely pervasive in our everyday lives, especially in our lives online. We see this everywhere. 
And the sobering thing is that verse 15 shows us that the deeper and deeper and deeper we engage in that we're setting our own trap, we're running to our own pit, we're coming to our own destruction, calamity, look at verse 15, calamity will come upon him suddenly, in a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing, that the deeper and deeper and deeper we go into trolling, the more and more and more sure our, our own decay, our own breakdown, our own devastation, breakdown of relationships, breakdown of trust, breakdown of, of societies. And we see in a profound way that as this devastation comes, we see one of the forms of our God as king of the universe and judge over all things, one of the ways that he executes judgment in this world is he lets us fall to our own evil devices. Look at Romans chapter 1. That in our own sin, sometimes in judgment, God just hands us over to our own sin. That we keep rebelling and rebelling and rebelling, and in a profound sense, God says, fine, your will be done. And we are led to our own destruction, our own demise, our own undoing. Calamity coming suddenly over us, breaking us. And if this is true, and if God is God and He is judge and He is king, that shapes a couple things. That actually shapes us as Christians, those who have been transformed by the gospel to help defend the bullied because God is the defender of the bullied. That in some way we partner with God and we do it imperfectly. Why? Because your heart's like my heart. It's broken. But in some profound way, if God is judge and he defends the bullied, then by his spirit-enabled, gospel-centered, scripture-saturated church, obedient to his call, we in a unique way help defend the bullied. Because that's work that God does. Because when he sees things like hate and evil and discord and, and, and perversion of hearts, he hates these things. Listen to, the, listen to verse uh, 16. Six things the Lord hates, seven things that are abominations to him. This is strong speech. God hates it when he looks down at the children and the creation that he made and he sees us chewing each other to death. He hates that stuff because he loves us so much. He doesn't want to see his own creation go to its own decay and so he defends the bully. And if he defends the bullied, then so can we. That we can go about our networks of people, we can go about our friends and our neighbors, and we can care for those who are going through difficult times. We can in love and in grace step in and end hateful or hurtful talk to the extent that God has given us an opportunity and a relationship to do that. Because that's the work that he does. And if God is judge and he is sovereign, not only can we do that, but we can do that anxiety-free, peaceable, with patience. Do you want to know why? Some of the challenge when we see, we, humanity, when we see sin or evil kind of going rampant, there's, there's a part of our hearts that looks at it and says, hey, is anyone on that? Is, is anyone tending to that? And if we think that kind of we are the captain of our own fate, 
We are the master of our own souls. And if we forget that there is a God of the universe, we will run to brokenness absolutely anxious and bitter and panicked, thinking that if I don't do it, no one else is going to do it. But look at this, dear brother and sister. God is sovereign. God is the ultimate judge. And driven by love, he must take action against sin and evil. And knowing that that will fully and finally take place on the last day, his second coming, when Christ returns and establishes the fullness of his kingdom, everything wrong will be made right, the crooked paths will be made straight. And if that is true, we can engage in peacemaking and justice and, and healing, but we can do it peaceably, with patience, with kindness and compassion. Why? Because we know it's not all up to us. That ultimately, God is taking care of these things. So not only can we defend the bullied, we can do it peaceably. And then thirdly, you know what we can also do? We can do it humbly. With a profound sense of humility. Because I am broken too. The message of the gospel and, and biblical Christianity paints a picture of the human heart that is broken. We ask the question, especially in seasons like we're in now, what, what's, what's wrong with this world? Why is this world so broken? Do you want to know the answer? <laughs> because I'm in it. Because my heart is in this world. And the brokenness that I see all out there is the exact same brokenness that exists in here. The world is so broken because we're in it. And that gives us a profound sense of humility. That as, as, as Christians, saturated by the Bible, saved by God, we can help lead the charge in humility and patience and grace and compassion even for the bully. Why? Because I'm the bully. Because Christ did not come to heal the healthy. He came to heal the sick. He did not come to seek and to save those who are found, but seek and to save those who are lost. And that includes me. And as I read this portion of this passage, verses 12 and following, I kept, my mind initially kept looking out there, right? This is what our heart, this is what the human heart does. We read passages like this and we use them as binoculars and say, yeah, Lord, you go get them. I know exactly who you're talking about, and it's talking about someone else, someone out there, someone far away. And the more I read this passage, I realized this, this is not, these are not binoculars. This is a mirror. This is me. This is my heart. And we read this passage and we start to think through the things that we have thought, the things that we have said to people, the things that we've posted online. And a profound sense of humility comes over us because we realize how many times, Lord, how many times have I bullied the bully? How many times have I put a cold shoulder to those who put a cold shoulder to me? How many times do I look my, down my nose at those who look down their nose? How many times do I get angry at the angry? How many times do I want to hurt those who hurt? 
How many times do I gossip the gossip, slander the slanderers? And we recognize and we realize in a profound sense the same breath that we ask God in his sovereignty to bring what is right and true and just and bring his perfect sense of judgment on this world, we realize, whoa, that includes me. That if I ask for God's justice and we need to ask for that, it's all throughout the Bible. He's going to make everything wrong right. Bring your kingdom now as it is in heaven and we can pray for that and we ought to pray for that. And in the same breath, we say, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Because all the wickedness and evil I see out there that, Lord, I pray that you end, means that I am calling in an airstrike on myself. <laughs> in comes the gospel. In comes Christ. Do you see and do you realize that God will undo sin, but he's provided a way to undo sin and evil without, <laughs> without undoing us? So we say, God, bring justice and hide me under your wings that I would be absorbed up into the gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. And in doing that, brother and sister in Christ, we are absolutely humbled to the core with hearts broken both for the bullied and the bully that we navigate conversations both in person and online peaceably with patience, with understanding, that when conversations start to get spicy, we take it offline, we take it face to face, we take it person to person, and we do it humbly before God, knowing that we need the same grace that we can offer in such a way that we see come true what Romans chapter six says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it you obey its passions. Do not present your members, members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Listen also to Ephesians chapter 4. The first few verses, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want to be more like that. I want us to be more like that. And the only way we are going to become more like that is to absolutely throw ourselves in the gracious, loving, forgiving arms of our Savior. Or in the words of Proverbs, fear God. Fear God. That frees you from evil and it frees you for good. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you now needy, Lord. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need your forgiveness. 
We need your mercy. And Father, we thank you that you give that to us in Christ. You keep from us what we actually deserve. You give to us what we don't deserve. And all of that is found up in him. So Father, may this become increasingly true of our walk with you, that we would navigate this unprecedented season for, in our, for our generation, for, for this moment of history, Lord. That we would navigate this world and bring comfort, peace. In a world filled of fear and anxiety, may your grace emanate through us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.vcgurney.org.